God, if you are good, why were 17 lives taken at Stoneman Douglas High School last month? God, if you are so good, why was a self-described psychopath able to send bombs through the mail throughout Austin, killing a number of people, injuring many more, and putting our whole city on edge? God, if you are so good, why am I without a job, unable to provide for my family? God, if you are so good, why am I going through cancer right now? Why did my family member or my friend die? God, if you are good, why don't you prove it? Why don't you do something about it? If we're completely honest with ourselves, I think almost every single one of us for certain has has heard questions like these, but perhaps maybe we've even asked questions like these. And we find ourselves wondering, where is this good God that the Bible tells us exists in the midst of my suffering? Where is God? This morning, we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 23. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to look at suffering. And we're going to see two men who suffer. They are in extreme agony. And we're going to see two very different responses to suffering. I think we all struggle with suffering. We struggle with this idea that if there's a good God, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much hurt? It's a difficult thing for us to accept. And and we're going to see that there are very different responses to this idea of suffering this morning. Uh, And ultimately, I believe that our response to suffering, as we're going to see this morning, is a direct response to our understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I want us to not only answer real quickly the question of why we suffer, but my hope this morning is that you would leave here knowing how to suffer. How do I get through suffering? Because let's face it, there's a very... it's a reality that we will all face suffering. There's nothing we can do about that. It is common to every single one of us. There is nothing we can do to escape pain and suffering in this world, and there's a very good reason for that. Because we live in a fallen and a broken world. Our suffering is not because God is punishing us. Our suffering is not because there's not a good God. Our suffering is not because... God is absent from our world. Our suffering is because of sin. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see that uh, actually in chapter 2, God promises that when you sin, if you disobey me, and sin enters this world, the whole system will be broken. Everything broke when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. Romans 5 tells us that just as death entered the world through one man, So salvation entered the world through one man. So our suffering is a direct result of the very first original sin, but here's something that's going to be very unpopular. Our suffering is also a result of our very own sin. You understand? I know that's not popular. It's not an American thing to to think that perhaps my suffering was caused by me. And it's a very hard thing for us at times when we face suffering to say, you know what, perhaps I'm getting exactly what I deserve. As if God owes us something. 
as if a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God would ever owe us anything. Now, I'm not saying that your sickness, your loss of a loved one, is a direct result of some specific sin in your life. That's not what I'm saying. Although we do know that there are certain times if we choose to live a promiscuous lifestyle and we become afflicted with a disease, we can understand that perhaps that was a direct result. It's not that God is punishing us, but that is a result. There's a very real consequence for our sin. But we know that in general, that because of the sin of mankind, that our whole entire world system is broken and fallen. And we know... For example, the past few weeks, this, this young man in Austin, his sin directly affected a number of other people. It was not their sin that caused them to lose their life. It was not their sin that caused them to lose limbs or to be affected by this. It was the sin, the choice of another person that then affected their lives. So we can understand in a very real way how the sins of others affect the entire community. I think we can grasp that. This morning we're going to see two men who are in deep suffering, deep agony, yet they have two very different responses to Jesus Christ and to suffering and to their understanding of suffering. Uh, I want us to look in just a moment at Luke 23. And in Luke 23, this is the scene of Jesus on the cross. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Before we get to the cross, I I want you to understand exactly what's happening on the cross and what the cross was. The cross was a tool for execution that the Romans took from the Phoenicians. They adapted it and they perfected it. The whole idea of the cross was not just to execute someone. They had swords. They had different ways of doing that. They could have done that very easily. But the whole idea of the cross was to create a terror and a a tool that would cause people to think twice before they committed some sort of capital crime. The whole idea of the cross was to make people suffer. It would take hours, sometimes even days, for someone who was being crucified to die. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the cross was also meant to embarrass and to shame people. You were hung naked for days. And your body was often left to just rot. Or perhaps just taken off the cross and left on the ground as carrion for birds and wild dogs. The whole point of the cross was to make people suffer. To bring pain. As if the cross itself wasn't bad enough, often they had what was called, it was called the intermediate death, where people would be whipped with a leather whip that was embedded with pieces of sharp pottery or metal. We know Jesus received those 39 lashes before he was placed on the cross, and it was called intermediate death because oftentimes people would die just from the beating before they were even hung on the cross, from the loss of blood or the complete shock to their body. So As we read about the cross, as we read about these three men on the cross, understand that there is deep suffering, pain, and agony that they are experiencing through this whole process. And understand that there are very different responses to this. Very different responses to this. I want us to also understand this, that the horror of the cross 
was not in the physical pain, but in the spiritual rebellion of humanity that made it necessary. I want to let that sink in. The horror of the cross was not in the physical pain, but in the spiritual rebellion of humanity that made it necessary. It was my sin that made the cross necessary. It was your sin that made the cross necessary. It was our rebellion against God that made the cross necessary, and that is the true horror of the cross. And it's something that I think many of us don't want to admit. We don't want to face that reality. But I don't want you to be burdened by that reality either because we're going to get to the end of the story. We're going to get to the bright side of things here in just a little bit. But first, I'd love for us to look at Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 2. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, and what's interesting, I love this, it doesn't come across in English, but in the original language, the verb used there means that Jesus continued saying. That over and over and over again, this is what Jesus was saying as he's being crucified. Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lot, lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, since you, under the same, uh, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly, because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The rest of the story is this, that in a few moments, Jesus would breathe his last, committing his spirit into the hands of the heavenly Father, and he would die on that cross for the sins of the world. And three days later, he would rise from the dead by the power of God to prove that he had overcome sin and death, that my penalty of my sin had been paid for and the penalty of your sin had been paid for. That's the whole story of the cross, but I want us to focus in on these these men. Oswald Chambers says this, Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified. The penitent thief is crucified. And the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. It's not a matter of if we will suffer. It's a matter of when and how much we will suffer. And there's two kinds of responses that we see here. To suffering. The first is that we can choose to rail against God and say, if you're such a great God, if you are such a good, powerful, and loving God, then why am I going through this hellish mess? That's the first thief on the cross. The second thief on the cross responds, acknowledging that we are sinners and don't deserve anything good. He cries out to God for mercy and help in a time of desperation. 
What's difficult to understand is how the world is full of those who rail against God in self-righteousness and presume that the creator of the universe, an almighty, all-powerful, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God would somehow be obliged to make our lives smooth. As if God owes us something. But there are only a few who will own up to the fact that God owes us nothing and that anything good that comes our way is due only to the mercy of of God and not our merit. It's due only to the mercy of God and not our merit. We see this in the thieves. We see these two men. The first man says, aren't you God? Aren't you God? Save yourself and us. Essentially, he's saying, hey, if you're God, prove it. Win me over. Convince me that you are God. Get us down off the cross. And this is what we do. If you're God, prove it to me. If you're God, then why am I going through so much trouble? Maybe you blame God for the hurt and the pain in your life. This thief is no different. He says, aren't you God? Aren't you God? Get yourself off this cross and get me off this cross too. Get me out of this mess. If you're God, then why am I hanging on this cross? This is the age-old question. If there's a good God, then why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen? Why am I suffering? If you're God, save me. Rescue me from this mess. As if God owes me something. Honestly, what have I ever done to merit God owing me anything? What have I ever done to merit God owing me anything? Yet this thief says, aren't you good? If you're good, prove it. It's hard to believe that there are those who would rail against God, having the boldness to rail against Christ, and yet, in confidence, expect them to save him. And if he doesn't, then they reason that there's no understanding of why he should be looked upon as Savior. I love that Jesus doesn't respond to this man. I think if Jesus were to respond to this man, he'd say, you want me to save you? You want me to save you? What do you think I'm doing, genius? Maybe he wouldn't have the sarcasm that I have. But he would say, you want me to save you? That's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm saving you. And then we have the response of the second thief who says, are you crazy? Are you insane? You and I are under the same punishment. But we are getting what we deserve. We're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. This criminal understands that he is one who has broken the law and he is getting what he deserves. He says, we are suffering justly. They deserve to die for their actions. The word criminal that's used there, uh, it's, there's two different words, one used in Matthew and Mark and one used here in Luke. And the idea is that these are not just thieves that like break in at night and stealthily steal. These are the kind of people that rob in the open daylight using violence. And perhaps what happened is that these men used violence to rob someone, and in the process, they actually killed them. So these are murderers, the worst. And this man says, we are being punished justly for what we did. They're getting what we deserve, and one of them comes to realize that. And he has this realization, and he says, I deserve this. This is just. It is just that I pay the price. And then he says this to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, we have to understand that it's not like this man is bargaining. 
He's not in a position to bargain with Jesus. He is desperate. He has lost all hope. And he's not asking to be first in Jesus' kingdom. He's not asking for a place in Jesus' kingdom. All he's saying is, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you just have mercy on me? Would you remember me? If at all possible, would you just make a place for me? Simple plea from a desperate man who realizes that he's getting everything he deserves. And Jesus responds, and this is one of the most powerful phrases, perhaps the most powerful response that I can think of from Jesus to this man. From the cross, a place of total defeat, a place where it looks like the principalities and powers of this world are getting ready to triumph over Jesus Christ, we see that he triumphs. Jesus says this. He says, today, today, not when you get your act together, not when you join a community group, not when you've memorized a couple scriptures, but today, today you will be with me in paradise. And he offers comfort to this man. How is it possible that something so bad, out of something so bad, could come something so good? How is it possible that God could take the absolute worst thing that could happen in the world, the death of God's one and only Son, and turn it into something good, the best thing to ever happen in the world, his death, to pay the penalty for our sins. Yet that's exactly what he does. And he says, hey, you're suffering now, but because of your faith in me, I promise you that your suffering will not continue into the next world. So how do we get to that place? How do we become like this thief on the cross How do we suffer well? How do we make it through our own suffering? I want us to look back at verses 35 through 39. Let's look at this first criminal. It says, the people stood watching, and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering sour wine and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. Then one criminal hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. We know that the second criminal has a very different response. So how do we get through our own personal suffering? Knowing that Jesus Christ has already suffered for the penalty of our sins, how do we make it through those times when, as a result either of our own personal sin, we make a, a bad choice and we have consequences to pay, or as a result of someone else's sin, or just the result of living in a fallen sinful world, feeling the effects of sin, how do we suffer through that? The first thing we have to do is we have to be careful what voices influence us. We have to be careful about what voices we allow to influence us. There's the voice of the crowd and the voice of the other thief shouting, if you're the Messiah, the one who's supposed to deliver us from the Romans, because the Jewish idea of the Messiah was that this is a man who's going to come and he's going to be a military leader. He's going to kick the Romans out. And we're going to have our own nation again. He says, the, the crowd and this thief say, look, if you're the Messiah, if you're this military leader, How can we believe you if you can't even save yourself from these people? If you come down off the cross and you defeat these Romans, then we'll believe you. But Jesus' point of coming was not to deliver a military victory, but a spiritual victory. And they couldn't see that. And so they're calling out to him. They're saying, look, hey, we'll believe you 
And what's interesting is that this first thief, even in the midst of being tortured, the very people that are torturing him, he joins in with them. Perhaps as a way of trying to gain their favor, make them think that, hey, he's just like one of us, so that maybe they they might have pity on him. But what he doesn't realize is that joining with the world is no love for God. When you join with the world, there is no love for God. And so, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, I want to caution us that we be very careful about what voices we listen to when we suffer. Because the world will come to you and want you to question the goodness of your God, the reality of your God. Yet something is different about the second thief. He's often called the penitent thief or the repentant thief. Here's a man who in the midst of his pain and agony doesn't listen to the voice of the world, doesn't listen to the voice of even one suffering a similar fate. But in the midst of all of this, he's able to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God says, this is the Messiah. This is the one. The Spirit of God is the one who says, look, look. Look at what's happening for you. Look at what the Savior of the world is doing for you. And he begins to see and he begins to understand, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But even in the midst of his pain and agony, think about this, the disciples are running away from Jesus. Here is a thief, a hardened criminal, the worst of the worst who's running towards Jesus, and Jesus fully embraces him. And it's a direct result of his ability to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. As followers of Jesus, when you suffer, do you join in the world with questioning, God, if you're good, why am I going through this? Or, or are you like the penitent thief who maybe says, you know what, I don't have to like this. I, I, I don't have to like suffering. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to like our suffering. But we can face it and say, you know what, I don't, I don't like this. God, if, if it's possible, I ask that you get me out of this. But at the same time, I trust that you are a good and loving God and that perhaps you have a reason for me going through this. And so if you can't get me out of this, if you won't get me out of this, Lord, would you just be with me through this? And that's what the thief does. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus promises his presence to him. So how do we face? How do we face our suffering? Do we listen to the voice of the world or do we listen to the voice of the Spirit? The second thing we have to do is to develop a right perspective. Develop a right perspective. And in a minute, I'm going to give us three ways, three different areas in which we need to develop a right perspective. We don't know much about this thief on the cross. Um, We do know, number one, that he's not Roman because Romans were not allowed to be crucified. My best guess is that this is a Jewish man that probably lived in Jerusalem. He probably was a Jewish man that had lived in Jerusalem his whole life, which would mean a number of things. Number one is, I'm willing to bet that this man was familiar with some of the Old Testament scripture because as a Jewish male boy, he probably would have gone to to synagogue and learned some of the scriptures. He would have known about the Messiah. He would have known some of the things about the Messiah, yet somewhere along the way as he gets older, he falls in with the wrong crowd. He makes some bad decisions. And it affects the outcome of his life. But there's this background that he has. And I, and I wonder if while he's hanging there on the cross, he hears the voice of God. And, and I don't know what it was exactly that made the difference. Perhaps it was the way that Jesus was silent as he nailed 
is nailed to the cross. And this man remembers Isaiah 53, 7, which tells us this. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. And the man sees Jesus remaining silent, and he says, maybe... Maybe this is the guy, or perhaps it was the way that Jesus responds to the mocking of his enemy. And the man is taken back to Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. Another evidence. The light's beginning to turn on for this man. Perhaps it was the way he saw the Romans casting lot for Jesus' clothing. And he's reminded of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18. It says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Maybe it's the way that the sign hung over Jesus' head. Uh, and, and the way that uh, he sees the Romans offer Jesus this vinegar and wine. And he's reminded of Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. It says, instead they gave me gall for my food. And for my first they gave me vinegar to drink. Or perhaps it was the realization that here is an innocent man hanging between two thieves. And he's reminded of Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says, therefore, I will give to him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he submitted himself to death, and he was counted among the rebels. Yet they bore, he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Whatever it was, was it one thing? Was it a combination of things? Was it a miraculous intervention by God? Whatever it was, this man hears the voice of God and he sees that Jesus is different and he chooses to change his perspective. Number one, he, he changes his perspective. He develops a right perspective on who he is. Who he is. He understands, number one, I'm a sinner. And he says, as a sinner, he understands that as a sinner, I'm deserving of punishment for for my sin. I'm undeserving of anything good that God would give me. Yet, he understands that God is merciful and gracious. And in humility, he says, "I, I get it. I'm getting what I deserve. And I get it that you are ultimately paying the penalty for everything that I deserve. And he puts his trust in Christ. The second thing is he develops a right perspective on who God is. He understands what's great is this man has an understanding of right and wrong. And he understands that God is righteous. He understands that God is merciful, that God is gracious. And he understands that God is in control. Think about this. On the very cross, where it looks like Jesus is being triumphed over, he is still in control. Think about all those scriptures that we just read, all those promises from the Old Testament those prophecies about what would happen to the Messiah are all fulfilled in the cross. When it looks like God is no longer in control, all those prophecies are fulfilled and God is still in control. And we see it even further in verse 43 when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even in dying, he is in control. And this man says, if he's in control of death, I believe he's in control of what happens after I die. I'm going to put my trust in him, and he understands that. Lastly, he develops a right perspective on eternity. He develops an eternal perspective instead of a temporal perspective. The first thief has a temporal mindset, and he he views Jesus as, as only a power to get him off the cross. I call this plunger theology, right? 
plunger. Like plunger is this nasty, dirty, sticky thing uh, that we keep around as a necessity in case we get into trouble. We don't like using it. It's not something you don't like put it on your kitchen counter. You don't leave it out when guests come over. You hide it in the closet. You hide it in the garage. But we all have a plunger and we like to keep it around when things get a little stuck. And we say, God, get me out of this mess, right? Get me out of this. And then when God gets us out of it or we're through that season, we put it back and we forget about it because it's the dirty little nasty thing that only has uses when we're in a stuck mess, right? Perhaps it's not our mess that got got the toilet stuck. Maybe it is our mess that got the toilet stuck, but we need that plunger nearby in case we get stuck. God, unstick me from this bad marriage. God, unstick me from this job that I hate. God, unstick me. And then we put him back until we need a parking spot, right? God's a plunger just to be used to get us out of a mess. Here you go, Jack. Hold that for me. Thanks, bud. <laughs> That's brand new. I just bought it this morning. It's not a dirty one. I just thought I'd have a little fun. The second thief, the penitent thief, understands. He has an eternal perspective. He doesn't ask Jesus to get him off the cross, He understands we are both dying here today. We are both going to die, but this man can do something about my eternity. And that's where my hope is. I don't want to suffer like this for all eternity. So he puts his hope in the one and only who can affect that. And he puts his trust in Jesus because he sees Jesus. He sees the presence of Christ as the ultimate comfort. That's our last point. That's the last thing that I want us to see from this about how we suffer well. We have to see Christ as the ultimate comfort. The presence of Christ is greater than your present circumstance. You might want to write that down. We have to understand that the presence of Christ is greater than our present circumstance. Jesus promises that this man will be present with him in paradise. What a contrast. From the excruciating pain and agony to the refreshment of the garden of God. Early church uh, writer Tertullian says this. He says, If the foundation of your joy and happiness is your vocation, your relationships, your money, then suffering takes your source of joy from you. But if your ultimate value in life is God, then suffering drives you closer to your source of joy. When you suffer, and in America, when most of us think of suffering, we think of inconvenience, right? It's really more of an inconvenience than suffering. But when you suffer, are you driven further from God or are you driven to God as your source of joy? Do you see the presence of Jesus Christ as the relief, as the comfort, as the remedy to your suffering, as this thief does? There's nothing wrong, as I said, there's nothing wrong with praying, God, I don't desire to go through this. But if that's where we stop, Jesus, get me out of this, Jesus, get me unstuck from this, then we're missing it. Then that shows that our true joy is only in the things of this world. But when we're able to say, God, I would love for you to get me out of this, but if not, be with me through it. Just be present with me. Your presence is the only comfort I need. Your presence is the relief I desire. And I will be content knowing that you are walking through this with me. We see two very different responses, and I love this. I don't, I don't remember if I 
wrote this. It's really good, so I probably didn't. I probably found it from somewhere else and stole it, but I'm going to read it anyways. Suffering can be a tool that God uses to shatter our pride so that we see our need, repent of our sins, and believe the gospel. And I know there are many of you here today who would say, well, I've already believed the gospel. Well, don't forget that often suffering is something that God will use to shatter our pride, that God will use it to remind us of our need for him, to, our need to walk through these things with him. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have your hope in Jesus Christ. We know that he raised from the dead. We know that God fully overcame all sin, death, and suffering through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that he could make that promise that you will be with me in paradise. Not because of anything you have done. Not because I owe you anything. Not because you deserve salvation. But because God is merciful and gracious and loving. How is it that this murderous thief could possibly earn a place in heaven? The reality is, is that he can't. I can't. And you can't. But through his death, Jesus earned that place for us. So as followers of Christ, I want to encourage you this morning, in those times when you suffer, in those times when you're going through suffering, would you be aware of what voices are influencing you. Make sure that you're developing a right perspective on things and see the presence of Christ as the ultimate comfort. And for those of you here this morning that have yet to put your trust in Christ, I want to I remind you of this, that these two men, I don't think it's by any accident that Jesus was crucified in the middle. These two men had equal access to the Savior. They both saw the same things. In fact, one thief even sees the other thief receive the gift of salvation. They see the world go dark after Jesus, uh, after the 12th hour, in those last moments before Jesus dies. They experience the earthquake together. They were both still alive when Jesus died. And I love this idea. I think Jesus is the first to die because he's telling that second thief who's penitent, hey, I'm going to go ahead and get a place ready for you. I'll meet you on the other side. The second man, the first thief, sees this. The unrepentant thief sees all of this, yet it doesn't change him. And so his suffering, we know, continues, and we know that someday his knee will bow and he will confess Jesus as Savior, but it will be from a place of eternal torment and agony. That doesn't have to be your reality. Jesus Christ died for you. If he can forgive a murderous thief, and welcome him into his paradise by grace through faith, he will certainly forgive you. Let today be the day when you claim the promise of Jesus that you will be with me in paradise. Not because of your merit, not because of your good works, but because of his great work on the cross. If that is you today, I want to encourage you. I will be at the back after service. One of our elders will be up here to pray after service. There's also a spot on your connection card where you can check, I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you take one of those steps this morning? Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for his death.